We're going to go to the book of Genesis this morning, and we're just going to be in Genesis chapter 1. This is going to be part 3 of this section in our series, What We Believe About, and we're talking about God. So I want to have another message just about what we believe about God. We asked, does he exist? And we worked through that. And then last week's was, well, what is he like? Who is he? What's his nature? What's his character? Today, I'm going to start now looking at a third part of God, so to speak, and that's his actions. What does he do? What kind of actions does he take? God is a God of action. He's a God who works. He does things. But what does God do? Why does he take the actions he takes, for example? Let me read to you the Baptist Faith and Message, our convention's doctrinal statement, just so you can see where I'm getting some of this from again. And it's Article 2. It's the same one that we had last week. We'll be on it for a little bit. But I'll read it to you and we'll get going. It says, There is one and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being. The creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful, all-knowing. And his perfect knowledge extends to all things past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. To him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal triune God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes but without division of nature, essence, or being. Don't worry about the last part. We'll get to that in another message. Um, today, let's focus on this phrase. God is the creator, redeemer, preserver, and the ruler of the universe. And we'll talk about that as we get going. Before we do, though, I'd like to have a word of prayer over the time in God's word. Father, thank you for the songs that we heard, singing praises to you for the gift of your salvation. And Lord, I just love the song in particular. It says, life is worth living because we know Christ did not stay dead. He rose again from the dead. So thank you for that, Lord, that we have a hope of living and carrying on, knowing we will be with you in eternity. Lord, please bless our time now in your word to learn about the actions you take for us and for all your other creations for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, just so you know, I've had others ask, and I am trying to give sermon notes now. Uh, I didn't get them in the bulletin this week because the way it, I'm going to have to work on my process, to be honest, and get them earlier, but it's a little difficult for me to do that. So what I had to do today again is when you're done, if you want notes for this, I have them down here and I'll have them in the back. Uh, that's so you don't have to try to feverishly write down stuff. So just know those are there for you if you want them. Well, today let's talk about God's actions that he takes. Our doctrinal statement says he's the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. I'm going to turn those into action words, and I'm going to reverse the order a little bit. And here's God's key actions that we're going to talk about. It's that God created, God preserves his creation, then God rules over his creation, and then God redeems his creation. Now today, we are just going to look at the first one, God created. God took action by creating all things all the universe, all life, then his other actions that he takes are him sort of presiding over and taking care of that initial act of creation that he did. But I want to stress something to you that we really need to zoom in and focus close on the first action of God that he created. That is, my, my words cannot express to you how utterly foundational that is to the rest of the Bible's story. 
everything else in Scripture, even the coming of Jesus Christ, all has something to do with the fact that God created everything, life itself. So I just want to look at that this morning. It's so important. We believe God created all things. So if you ask yourself, what's this message about? What do we believe about God? Well, we believe he created all things. It's that plain and simple. That's the main theme of this that I want you to walk away with. But I want us to talk through that. Like, what does that actually mean? So we're going to lay out how God created everything and then why that is important that we understand that truth. Now, I want to make a note before I dive into this. Um, Next Sunday, if you can be here, what I plan to do, Lord willing, I'm going to say some things today that if you've been in public education systems or maybe even private to some degree, if you're a person of science, you have no doubt heard of something called the theory of evolution. I'm going to say some things today that you might ask yourself, well, that doesn't jive with what I've been taught from science. Next Sunday, I intend to go into some of that. We will talk about what is this theory of evolution that is taught in our system of society And how do we wrestle with that and process that when we understand what I'm going to share with you today from Genesis chapter 1? Because that has sometimes caused some issues for people thinking they have to choose, do I follow science or the Bible? And next Sunday we'll try to look at those two things together. Today we're just going to look at what the Bible says though and dive into that. Let's start by asking this question though. Why does God take action in the first place? What are his motives for taking action? I mean, think of it like this. God could have never created at all. We could have never been here. So why did he choose to do it at all? What's his motive behind that? Well, God has a mind of his own. He has a will of his own. He makes plans and he carries out those plans. I want you to notice there are some things the Bible says that whenever God takes an action, they all kind of have something in common as far as his motive. And here's kind of three things to think about. Every plan of God and action will have these things in common. God makes plans according to his own free will, his own mind. And then he takes action in according to the plans that he made. And here's the big one is the third one. God's plans and actions have as their their purpose or their aim to bring God glory. So he's bringing glory to himself. Now, sometimes when people hear that, they think, well, wait a minute, is that selfish of God? Like, doesn't he tell us not to be selfish? So how can he get off the hook for doing things that I'm telling you are all for the purposes of him getting glory and praise? Here's how to think about that, though. God is the highest being that there is. There's no higher being than God. I think we would all agree with that. If there were a higher being than God, then the God we're worshiping would not really be God, would he? We would need to worship the higher being. But there is no higher being than God. He's the highest. Because that is true, if God did something that brought glory to us or a planet or another creature, then in a technical sense, God himself would be committing idolatry. And he can't do that. See, idolatry is when you or I do not give God the full praise and glory that he's due Well, that means God also must do things that in turn bring himself glory and praise or else it's idolatry because he's the highest being. There's no higher being that can be worshipped or served. So rather, God is not being selfish. He's being God. But here's the other thing. When God does actions that bring himself glory and praise, it's also for our benefit. It's out of love for his creation. 
God will never carry out actions that go against his holy, just, and loving nature. He'll always do things that are for his glory, but for your benefit too. An example of this is salvation in Jesus Christ. God chose to send Jesus to die for our sins and rise again on the third day. God gets glory for that. That's the point. It's for him to get glory, honor, and praise. However, at the same time, you and I benefit from it. We're saved. We're forgiven from our sins. When God acts to bring glory to himself, we're benefiting. Quick examples of this. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, I won't read all these to you, but there are several places if you read Ephesians 1 where Paul talks about your salvation that you have in Jesus, and then he tacks on this phrase, to the praise of God's glory, or to the glory of God. An example, Ephesians 1.12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, meaning believe the gospel, might be to the praise of God's glory. Philippians 1.11, Paul says he hopes that you're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Why? To the glory and praise of God. That's the point. So you benefit from salvation, but the point of it is to give God, the highest being in all the universe, the praise and glory that he's due. Now, the other reason God takes action is he does things based on his own counsel, his own will, his own his own design plan that he's made. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. I want you to notice this phrase then. This is God, who works all things according to the counsel, that word can be plans, of his will. So any action God takes, he did it because it fits his plans based on his will, and he did it, so he gets glory and praise, and it's for our benefit. So you have all those things happening in any action that God takes. That leads us then to look at the very first action God took that we have recorded. He created. God created. The first action that we have in the Bible, which is God's word to us, that says, let me tell you something God did. The very first thing it says is God chose to create everything. Day one, look at this. I'm going to go through each day. Day one, let's call it God created space, earth, and light. So here's why I draw your attention to Genesis chapter one now. The very first verse of all the Bible simply says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now remember what the Bible is. It's God's written word to us so we can know him, serve him, honor and worship him. So then that means if you've ever written a paper or a book, or if you've ever tried to write anything, you may know Sometimes it's hard to figure out, how do I actually start this thing? Like, what's going to be the very first sentence of this thing? Think about the Bible. Like, what's going to be the first sentence of all the Bible? And here it is. What this first sentence wants us to know is its first subject mentioned is God. And the first verb ever in the Bible is that he created. So it's very important the Bible wants us to know this. The very first action we have that God took is he created God's the subject, the verb's created. What did he create? Everything. That's in this phrase, heavens and earth. There's nothing excluded from that. Heavens really means like space. You have the earth, the planet, and everything else outside of the planet. That's everything. Why did he do it, though? Well, no one made him do it. I went through that stuff earlier so we could make this point. No one made God do this. He did it of his own free will because it fits his plans. It's what he wants to do. And he will get glory from creating the word created is also unique in Genesis 1. 
Um, it's in the Hebrew Bible, pops up around 48 times. And here's what I want you to catch with this word created. Every time it shows up in the Old Testament, it only ever has God as its subject. That means whatever is going on in this word created, it is a power that only God has. No other creature has this kind of creative power. So that means even in human speak, when we say things like, I made this or I created that, it can't in no way mean this way right here in Genesis 1.1. This is something special only God has. It means that God can create something from nothing. Think about that. He can create something from nothing. It also means that he can take something that does already exist and he can sort of mold and fashion it into something even greater. So those are kind of the two ways God can create. Make something pop into existence with just his words and thoughts. And then he can take that something and make it even better and fashion it into something after his plans. I stress then God created everything here in Genesis 1-1 from nothing. The formula goes like this when we read in Genesis 1. God will say something and the thing he said will come to be. And then he will look at it and give it a purpose And then at the end, he'll say, it's good. It's exactly how I wanted it to be. It's perfect. It's fit for its duty. It has no sin in it. But I want to keep stressing this. God did not use some prior existing materials to create this initial stuff here in Genesis 1-1. All of space, matter, and the stuff of the universe did not exist before Genesis 1-1. Only God existed. And God just simply caused it to come into existence. Think of Play-Doh or Legos. If you ever played with the Play-Doh or built Legos, you can rightly say, I made this with Play-Doh. I made this with the Legos. You could say a house. I made this house. That's true. But you had to use other materials to make the house. You had to have the Play-Doh to play with the Play-Doh and make other things. We took the boys to the Journey Through Slime thing yesterday and I thought of this to illustrate this here, they made slime. But they didn't create slime. They made it. They had to take the ingredients laid out on their tray, and they had an instruction sheet, and they had to follow the instruction sheet, and out came slime. But they didn't create it. They didn't create the materials and all that. They used materials. That's not what God did, though. God had no materials to use. He just simply spoke it into existence. Then he made everything else happen. So Genesis 1.1 is telling us this. God created everything from nothing. Hebrews 1.10 says, You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created, notice, by the word of God, so that what is seen with our eyes was not made out of things that are visible. So God just spoke this stuff into existence. God has a type of power we can't comprehend. Let's look at what he created. So Genesis 1-1 is sort of telling us God created the earth itself, so picture the planet, and then the heavens is like all the space around it. But now what is going to happen in verse 2 and beyond, God's going to start doing something with that. He's going to create more things to fill it and organize and shape stuff. So here in verse 2, we can think of this as God now will create light and time itself, it says the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So notice the earth is sort of like a planet with nothing in it at this point. It's not organized yet. 
Now God's going to begin to create new things to fill that planet and things go around the planet. And then notice God's spirit is sort of like a mother hen kind of brooding over her chicks, watching over it. The spirit of God just kind of preserving over this creation here, taking care of it. Well, here's what God made. Verse three, it says, God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day. The darkness he called night. There was evening and morning the first day. Now, in this verse, uh, some have been tripped up by this and say, how can that be true? Because he doesn't create the sun until I think day four or wherever we'll get there. It's actually rather simple. This is not saying God created the sun or anything like that. This is saying God created light. And this is hard to stretch our minds and think about, but God created light itself as a concept, as a thing. What does the sun produce? Light. Well, the sun didn't create light. It houses light. So who created light? God created light. So he creates light. And now then he starts this sort of day night cycle. Time begins to progress day to day. You see the phrase evening and morning day one. That'll keep repeating throughout this day two. God created sky and space. Genesis 1 verse 6 begins. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that they were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning. Now we have a second day. Now most Bibles, including mine, will say the word heaven, and that's okay, but I, I don't want you to be thinking about that word than what it really means. That word heaven actually can mean the skies in space. So when we read that, uh, don't think it means heaven like heaven versus hell or heaven and eternity. It's not exactly what it's getting at. It's getting at all of like the black space that we know in the sky above. God sort of laid and rolled all that out. And he's going to put stuff in it, like planets and birds and things like that. Well, that's day two. Day three, God formed dry land and vegetation cycle. It says in verse nine, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruits, trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Again, notice God just speaking it, and, and it's happening. That's his power. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, now we have a third day. Now what's going on here is, notice God's power over creation. He doesn't just have the power to call things into existence and create them. He has the power to speak authority over them and say, now here's what you're going to do. Here's how you're going to be. I mean, he told the waters where they're going to gather together so land could appear. He spoke and it happens. Another thing to note here that's interesting to me when it says that God caused the ground to sprout forth vegetation and trees with fruit in the seed in them, well, what God's creating here is this process in nature for fruit and vegetables and crops to begin to grow and have seeds and reproduce. So God isn't just creating stuff. He's creating processes in nature that cause things to carry on and on and on, like fruit and plant reproduction. Notice this phrase, according to its kind as well. That came up in verse 11 and 12. That word can be thought of as a type. So God created each type or kind of fruit and vegetables. 
I stress this here because I don't believe, let's take an apple for example, I don't believe that God created every single type of apple. That's probably not what he did. He just created the apple. And then he built within the apple, the seeds, and the ability to reproduce as the seed grows. And given different climates and temperatures and things, you'll have different types of apples that grow from off of that. I mean, you may know in farming or planting things, you can almost kind of manipulate how things might even grow based on how you've studied the plants reproducing things with their seeds. You introduce a different element, climate and stuff. My point is God built that into these things. So he created the different kinds or types of all the fruits and vegetables. Then in day four, God created light holders to fill space. Now what's interesting to me is in days one through three, God sort of lays the foundation. Picture like God built a house. He put the frame up and the walls. He's built a house now. Well, now in days four through six, he's going to create things like the furniture and the people to live in the house. So he kind of has built the frame, the foundation. Now he's going to start putting stuff in it. So day four, it says, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day. That'd be the sun, the lesser light to rule the night, the moon, and then the stars. God said, set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God looks at it and says, it's good. There was evening and there was morning. Now we have a fourth day. So this expanse is the heavens or the skies that I told you about from day two. So God created that in day two. Well, now in day four, he fills it with stuff. Well, he fills it with the planets, the sun, the moon, the stars, the things that we look at with our telescopes in space. And he says now they have a purpose. They're to sort of give light on the earth and they're to let humans study them and be able to see seasons and all these things going on. Evening and morning, day four. Well, day five, God will fill the water that he made and the space above the earth. So God created sea and air creatures. Verse 20, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Again, same formula as before, evening and morning, fifth day. So now God begins to create all kinds of sea animals and living organisms, birds even as well to go in the space in the sky. The English Standard Version that I use says great sea creatures. The New American Standard says great sea monsters. And I looked at that a little bit, and it's interesting because that word in Hebrew does give the idea of massively great sea creatures, possibly like we would think of some type of massive sea monsters. Now, I stress that because some scholars have looked at that and said that could be sort of a hint that we have discovered like dinosaur fossils and things, creatures that we no longer see day to day. Well, it's quite possible that, yes, they, they did exist way back then. And words like this are saying God created massive creatures that we don't even see today. But at the original creation, he had them there. So he creates, though, all different kinds of categories is the point here. Notice the phrase again, like with the fruit and veggies, according to their kinds. God creates 
the different mammals and then like sharks and whales, all these different kinds of creatures and also in the air. And then he says to them, they now have a mandate. These creatures are to reproduce themselves. That's this be fruitful and multiply. So they're to have babies who will have more babies and more and on down it goes. And now the seas will be filled and the sky will be filled with all these creatures. That means then what God did is he didn't just create animals. He created sort of within the animals themselves this innate natural instinct to reproduce and have more. So I just want to draw your attention to that again. I've said it before, but I think it's fascinating to me. God isn't just creating things. He's creating processes and mechanisms for those things to keep doing stuff and carry on throughout time. Now day six, God creates land creatures and humans to fill the earth. So he's filled the space and sky above now. He's filled the water and the air, and now he's going to fill the land itself. It says in verse 24, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their cons, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their cons. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their cons. That's being repeated a lot, as you see. And the livestock according to their kinds. There it is again. Everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. God saw it was good. Well, now God creates land animals of all kinds, according to their kinds. It is repeating this over and over and over for a reason, I believe. The reason it's doing this is it's trying to let us see that God created sea, air, and land creatures, all different types and kinds. But the phrase, according to their kind, means that what God did is created them with an ability to reproduce, and even throughout time, they could sort of adapt and change as they're reproducing, given different geography and climate and all that so we look at that and say hey we've we've seen different species of animals let's take a dog for example it's possible god did not create the dog as we know it what god created was the canine the canine kind or type and then over time the canine uh, goes here and there and there's different canine types that god probably made and as those reproduce they sort of adapt and change over time and in our day we have things like the dog that's domesticated but what God created is an ability for the canine to keep reproducing and sort of change. Well, he did that with all different categories of creatures and animals. Well, I stress that because within, within that kind, picture a lane or a track. So you have the canine kind, the feline kind. You have all these different kinds. Within that lane, they will only ever live and reproduce according to their kind. Now, I'm giving you a little preview to next week. That's one of the issues I have with the theory of evolution is evolution will teach you that if you were to go millions and millions of years back in time, you'll find that all species come from one single cell organism and everything just adapted and morphed down from that. That's actually kind of impossible. And in here, in the wording of the Bible, it doesn't allow for that belief because it says God created a kind and within that kind, it reproduced and formed. And then another kind, and it, they don't cross over is the point. Cats don't cross over with dogs, and re, that's not what's happening here. But evolution would kind of have you believe that. But here, God created things specifically according to their kind. Now, I remind you again that thus far, these creative actions are happening just because God said, God speaks it into existence. Again, just the power of God to simply speak things and all reality comes to be. Now we get to God's most special creatures, us, people. Look with me in verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds, 
of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, I'm going to have a message on that in the future, so I'm not going to go too deep in right now on, on females, or excuse me, male and female, Adam and Eve and all that. So we will have a message just on humanity. But I just want to say this for our purposes here. Notice that what God did, though, he created another creature that he calls mankind. It's a land-based creature. But this creature will be unlike any other that God has made so far. Notice the phrase, because God said, this creature will be made according to his image and likeness. No other creature said said be like that. Just mankind. In, this creature would be made having some of God's characteristics even. That's what is behind the word image and likeness. It, it's actually a tricky word to fully nail down. But what we kind of know is the word means a type of representative model, even, even a statue that you would make to represent something else. So in a way, God was saying, I'm going to create man and woman here, and they're going to be kind of like my earthbound representation of me and who I am and what I can do. Now, I want to stress that does not mean we are God. We're absolutely not God. But in some sense, though, we are created according to some of God's likeness so we can reflect his glory. The way I would like you to think of this is the sun. You have the sun and then it casts a shadow. Well, picture God is like the sun and we're his shadow. We're not God, but we reflect sort of the, the shadow of God, the glory of God. He looks at us and said, I've put some of my characteristics in you so you can turn and praise me and know me and glorify me. Mankind is uh, given special attributes then, unlike land creatures and sea creatures. For example, we humans have a brain. All animals have a brain, but our brain has logical capacities. We have moral capacities. You can train a dog, right, to do this or that. In fact, your dog, your cat, whatever kind of person you are. Sorry, I think cats look down on people, but that's okay. I, I'm a dog guy. So cats and dogs, you can kind of train, but that doesn't mean that they're moral creatures. It just simply means you've trained them to give a response. You and I are moral creatures, though. We know right from wrong, good from evil. God, God put that in us. That's part of his image. We're unlike the rest of God's creatures that he made. Not only that, God gave us a soul, a spiritual side of us. We can know God, communicate with God, worship God. A dog or a cat can't do that. Now, by their existence, they give glory to God, but they don't consciously worship God. There's no dog church, right? There's no cat church. If you find one, let me know. You could probably make some money off that, but that's another story. So they don't do those things. There's no, you know, sea creatures don't gather together and have church. We do that because God has put special attributes in us to know him personally. Not only that, he gave us a special mandate. It says here that he told mankind to rule over the rest of God's creation. So in verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. God made two genders, you see, male and female. And those are two fixed genders that are meant to correspond to one another so that they can reproduce just like the animals. Uh, there's not more than two genders and there's not a mixture of genders here. Now notice the mandate that God gives to them in verse 28. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, just like the animals. Fill the earth, but here's what's different. Subdue it. He didn't say to the dolphins, subdue the earth. He didn't say to the tigers, subdue the earth. He said to the man and woman, 
you will subdue the earth and rule over it on my behalf. He says, have dominion over the fish in the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth. Man and woman are to reproduce, and at the same time, though, they're to have dominion and rulership over God's creation. Again, humanity does not rule in the place of God. We rule on behalf of God. It's a key difference. Now, sin has caused humanity to do away with God and say, we got this, it's ours. But the original design for mankind was God to say, hey, you guys have special powers and abilities so you can praise me and honor me and manage my creation on my behalf. Humanity is to be like stewards of God's creation, not the owners of it. But this explains to us why humanity is the dominant species out of all the other species on the planet. Because God designed us to be. He gave us abilities beyond all the other species. This is why we rule over the rest of God's creation, because it's on God's behalf, the way he wanted it. Now, I went through that that part earlier about asking, why does God do anything at all? What's his motivation? Because now I want to address this here. Why did God create humans? What was his motivation for doing that? Well, we know this for certain. God created people because he wanted to, not because he needed to. Some have tried to say, well, God did all this stuff because he was missing something. No, God wasn't missing anything at all. God wanted to do this. His own free will did it. That means then this, now personally, for you and I. There's a reason for your existence and for my existence. And it's that God chose to create humanity because it fit his will, it fit his plans, and it would bring him glory. At the same time, God wanted you. He didn't need you wanted you so he made people out of love out of his desire for people your life then is not an accident your life has value your life has meaning and purpose you could substitute whatever you want for what is the meaning and purpose of your life but i can tell you this just based on reading genesis 1 here the very fact that you exist means god wanted you god wants you to be in a personal relationship with him That's why I made Adam and Eve to start this and create this human species. If you've ever questioned the purpose of your life, why you exist, it's actually rather simple. You exist to use your life on earth to be in a personal relationship, a fellowship with your creator God, and to bring God glory through serving him with the life you have on this earth and just enjoy his fellowship and love. That's your purpose. The meaning of life is to exist in God's presence enjoy God's presence and bring glory to God. And that's what heaven is about. You get to do that for all eternity. But while you're here on earth, that's your purpose still too. To know him, serve him, love him, praise him, bring glory to him. Now in Genesis 1.31, we read, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. All of God's creative acts are sort of summed up in those six days when God looks at it and says, it's very good. That means it's perfect. It's complete. It's exactly the way God wanted it to be. Well, someone could say, how can that be? Because we all know life can be terrible. Life can throw us a lot of problems and there's wickedness and there's evil. How can that be good? Well, it's not good, but that's the point. Is right here, though, when God first created, there was no problems. There, there was no evil. There was no wicked. Everything was perfectly good, including the people. 
the way they were supposed to be. So we'll talk about that in the future as well, but we'll see what happened. The reason we experience problems like we do today is because something happened to this original good creation that was not good. And we have to deal with it until the Lord returns. Day seven, the final day, God rested. It says in Genesis 2, the heavens and the earth were finished in all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. The point is God was done. There was nothing else to create that God felt necessary to create. He had done everything he intended to do. Now there is some debate even amongst Christians over how do we interpret the days in Genesis. Are they literal 24-hour days or is it something else? There's several views on this. I won't dive into the weeds on it. Let me just mention a couple. One view is called uh, day age. They, they, they read day one, two, three, and they, they say that's not a literal day like we know it. They'll say that's an age of time, an epoch of time. What they're doing here is they're trying to let the science of evolutionary theory fit the Bible because science will say the earth is millions and millions of years old. So they'll come to Genesis and say, well, that's possible if you interpret day as long periods of time like an epic of time. That's a view. The other view is what I've been telling you, the sort of the literal day that we know as, a day and night cycle, 24 hours that we measure it. Some have said, well, what this is ha- going on here is this is using language that humans can understand. It's using the language of we understand day to day to day. But they'll say, but God didn't literally create things like that, literally in, in a day and a day and a day. So they, they argue, well, uh, God just simply sort of condescended to our puny human brains and spoke in terminology we could understand. But what really happened is he created over long epics and periods of time. So you got these different views out there. Let me just say this quickly. I strongly believe, and I'll, I will actually die on this hill if I have to, when you read this and you let it speak for itself, it is clearly talking about literal days of time as we know it. Day One, day two, and three, and on it goes. This is not epics and periods of time. Yes, I believe God literally created all things in six days as we know it, and he rested on the seventh. Exodus 20, verse 11, when God tells Moses the Ten Commandments, and he gives him the Sabbath day commandment, he said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Here's what God said to Moses. He said, in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I share that with you because God spoke to Moses and said, Moses, I'm interpreting this as he said, I literally created this in six days and I rested on the seventh. And the proof of that is he said to Moses, that's why you have a Sabbath day law, because I literally created this in six days. My point is, I don't think Moses and the Jews would have understood this in any other way except literal. It was six days, and he rested on the seventh. Another thing is, um, whenever this comes up in the Bible, it's always spoken about that God did it in actual days of time, as we know it. There's no doubt that's how they understood it. The word day that's showing up here in Genesis chapter 1, it shows up a lot in the Old Testament. But 86% of the time it appears in the Old Testament, it means a literal day, like a day of the week. So the vast majority of the time, it is to be understood as a day, a real day. The other thing to think about um, is it is true that this word day can sometimes be figurative, and it can mean like an age. But here's the thing. 
Whenever the word day appears in the Old Testament with an, a number beside it, like one, two, or three, it always, every time, clearly means a literal day. Boy, in Genesis, that's what happened. Day one, day two. The last point to make on this is you notice that when we went through the days of creation, how did they all end? There was evening and there was morning, day one. Evening and morning, day two. Evening and morning in the Hebrew language is literally an evening, dark nighttime, and a morning, day, light time. When you read this, there is much more evidence to say the power of God is such that he literally created everything in six days as we know it, and he rested on the seventh. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things by your will. They exist. They were created. So why did God create? For him to get glory. That's why. God's first action ever recorded in the Bible that he wanted you and I to know is he created. He created you. He created all the creatures. He created all the stuff. He created everything. And we serve a creating God. God is the creator of all life, all things all of space, even time itself. God's creative action shows us a few things. His creative action shows us he has all power, all wisdom. He has the power to create and the power to shape and form the things he created. God can just call something into existence that didn't exist before. God can then command his own creation to do his will, abide by his desires. The second thing is God's creative action shows us his glory. I've tried to stress that throughout this. It's all for his glory, for him to get honor and praise. God is truly the only being worthy of our worship and devotion. The third thing to note is God's creative action shows us that a person's life has eternal, and I stress that, eternal value. God created people to be eternal beings, to exist with him in eternity. And that's what makes hell such a tragedy, is it wasn't meant to be that way. They were meant to exist with him for all eternity. Your life as a person has meaning. It has eternal value, ultimate value, because God wanted you. He wanted you to be here. God wants all people to know him personally. He wants us to rule over this creation on his behalf and love and serve him. My question as I end this would be, are you faithfully serving that God? We owe, literally owe, our very existence to him. And serving him is the point and the purpose of your life and mine, glorifying him is the point and purpose of our life. So the question for each of us would be, has the focus of your life, has the focus of my life been about him? Or has it been about other things? Because the primary focus to everything in our life needs to be about him. Knowing him, and serving him, worshiping him, because he's it. There's no higher thing, purpose, or goal you can commit your life to than serving that God. But I stress only through Jesus Christ, his son, can you know him personally. Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life to be with God the Father. And I pray you know him as the Savior and forgiver of your sins.